Heavenly Father, we um, are grateful um, knowing what privilege it is that we could gather together as your people and that we could come and study um, the history of the church, which is uh, really the history of your working of redemption in your group of people, um, your, own, uh, your own people. And so, God, we are grateful that we can learn uh, from our past and to see the ways in which um, many of the, the ways of thinking that they were uh, needing to address in their day and in their culture uh, centuries ago um, has touch points with, with our day. And we can uh, understand what was happening back then and to seek to, um, to apply uh, what they the truth that they clung to, to seek out to apply it to the challenges that uh, we face today. So God, we pray that tonight um, that you are honored and glorified, that you, uh, by your spirit, would uh, open up our minds, help us to understand, um, and uh, to uh, open up to us the ways in which uh, we can see um, your truth more clearly and uh, recognize uh, error um, that is uh, around us at all times and um, that we could do so uh, not only for our own growth, for our own growth in uh, our knowledge of our Savior Jesus Christ, uh, but also for our sanctification and also for our witness uh, to the world. And so we pray uh, that you guide us in that uh, tonight, guide us in our discussion and we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, there's a, everybody has a handout uh, there. And last week we looked at the group called the what? Gnostics. Gnostics. Okay, share with me a couple of you, some of the, who are here. Uh, what were some of the features of Gnosticism that you remember? Secret knowledge. Secret knowledge, yes. Joe's got it, so it's the the, um, the Greek word gnostic, gnostic comes from knowledge. Uh, so it was not just knowledge as we would acquire it, you know, through reading or learning or hearing or through the senses. This was uh, supernatural knowledge. This was uh, acquisition of knowledge from other sources. So uh, gnostic comes from the word for knowledge. So secret knowledge, good. Uh, anything else? Anyway, Caleb. Well, we're on. We're reverbing here. Okay. Uh, what'd you say? Bad spelling. Bad spelling. Yeah, I know that was my. Oh no, I I I meant the word gnostic. Not that you misspelled it. I'm saying. Oh. <laughs> 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 yes, that they were bad spellers. I remember that nobody I was going to do the Gary Gnu thing, but nobody would know that. Nobody knew the Gary Gnu thing. I know the Gary. Thank you. That you're we're of a similar age. So, um, okay. So, and they were bad spellers. Okay. What else was? Uh, what were some other features of the Gnostics? Yes, pulled from variety of sources, right? Um, various sources, so it kind of had a little bit of Platonic uh, thought 
also would pull from some uh, Eastern uh, Persian religious ideas um, from Philo. Remember the uh, I mentioned Philo, who was a uh, uh, was trying to synch synthesize um, Judaism and uh, Greek philosophy. Uh, drew from a lot of those sources, and then would take would find another ideas, and then would incorporate those ideas in, and did so with Christianity, and changed those terms like. Christ, Redeemer. I seem to remember that there's a couple of terms, and maybe they come from anthropology, and they describe like how some cultures are like the Gnostics, and they're just like they'll—they're just a grab bag. They'll take from whatever whatever other cultures they like, and then there are others that will uh, that are very close to that. The ter the term for groups that would do this, uh, right, so or like, uh, syncretism, pluralism. It's something that's not specifically religious, though. It can be cultural too, like the um, like the gypsies, the Roma are very very close. They don't want to take from anything, and like the Jews would. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, no, we're not we're not borrowing from all this. We're keeping it close. Yeah. Anyway, I just yeah. wondered if anybody else had heard those. Yeah, it's a term for both of them that, that we're sealed off, isolating ourselves from the, the cultural influences, and the other one was free to borrow from them. Yeah. yeah. Anybody got ideas what terms? Syn syncretism is the one I was thinking of, the one that was trying to, to bring in the, the uh, various ideas, which, could, which usually is religious, but sometimes maybe it could be more cultural. Um, Anybody can think of another term? Like Rosie started talking about. If you think of it, right. raise your hand. Right. Raise your hand there. <laughs> uh, what else for the, the Gnostics? Theologically. The material world was evil. Material world was evil, yep. So they had a strong uh, a strong dualism, uh, which was the, the material was evil, matter was evil. Um, and the consequent of that was, is what? Man. I'm sorry, I'm in the way here, but what's that? Um, so matter was body evil. Is evil. What's, uh, yeah, so body, the physical, the physical body would be evil. What would be good? Like spirit, right? Or an immaterial. The immaterial world was good. And this came from the idea of... Um, the creator of the world was uh, was a remember the term for this the demiurge, the demiurge right was a was an, the evil creator of all the material world, and so um, that that idea kind of crept into Gnosticism and we'll see that uh, we'll see that again. So last week, any other any other things you remember from the Gnostics? Strong dualism, uh, matter was good and evil. So uh, what what. It, Okay, so we looked at the we looked at the world. We looked at God. Their understanding of God was the Creator God of the Bible was actually the demiurge was so created the evil, and then there was the pleroma, 
the, which was kind of the dwelling place of the unknowable God. And that really man's problem is being trapped in their physical body, not knowing that their ignorance mm -hmm. of their own, that they're, that they're no longer in the, and that's all I got. So very good, good re recalling that. Yeah, so man's problem was not moral problem. Man's problem was an ignorance problem. He did not realize that he was actually an emanation from the divine who dwelled in the plerima and had escaped the plerima and had come down to the created world and was now uh, embodied, imprisoned in a material body. So the gospel, really, to, uh, to the Gnostics would be, um, if you were to boil down the gospel for Gnosticism, uh, what, I mean, if you, I mean, they had elevators back then, and, you know, a regular person got into an elevator, and a Gnostic got into an elevator, and you had your elevator gospel conversation, what would the Gnostic gospel be? Let's try to exercise that out. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> what do you believe? You know, you've heard of the elevator versions of of uh, the gospel, right? For Christians, what would be the elevator version for a Gnostic gospel? You must be enlightened. You must be enlightened. Good. Must be enlightened. What was the second thing you to said? Your, enlightened to your condition. To your condition. Okay. Here are two pills. The red one or the blue? Big <laughs> <laughs> one. That is. Uh, Let's see what happens. <laughs> and I've said this before. You know, the the matrix is you know is very gnostic. Has very gnostic things in it, right? Because you're you're <clears throat> blind. And let's use the matrix there for a moment. There's a scene in which he goes, "You feel like something is wrong with the world, like a splinter in your mind." Maybe that actually could be the place that you a gnostic would start, right? And something's something's wrong. You haven't put your, can you you haven't been able to put your finger on it. Well, let me be able to let me tell you uh, what the problem is. The problem is that all of this is not real. The ultimate reality is somewhere else, and you are a spark of that ultimate reality in this world. And so, what you really need to to understand is how to connect back to that ultimate reality. Would that sound like that fits the Gnostic, the Gnostic gospel? How would you tie in, like, I forget the word, but the Jesus, the... Yeah. Uh, they would say that, that Jesus, you've heard of Jesus, right? Well, he came from the Plerima, and he has descended down, and he's a messenger of the Plerima to show us the way in which we could truly be connected to the unknowable God. This sounds like Scientology. <laughs> yes? In what way? Like these, these concepts of secret knowledge, God being relegated to only that which is spiritual, yeah. advancing through enlightenment. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So Scientology could be like Gnosticism modern day. I think that that's a pretty accurate, I think there's definitely some parallels to that, especially if you understand uh, how many of you have seen the documentary uh, on Scientology called Going Clear. 
Rosie read the book, I think, by the guy who that, that, that that's based on. Um, but when there's a certain level when you get into Scientology and you get the backstory that there was, uh, uh, what do they call him? Xenu, the galactic overlord. And he's taken all of these souls and he has put them into airplanes, DCs, and they sent into bombs and atomic bombs and dropped them onto volcanoes. And that's where humanity is. Yeah, that is very similar. There's a, very, a lot of Gnostic influences there. I would say everything in the New Age... Uh, almost everything in the New Age has apparently got a resurgence kind of in my lifetime. I remember that becoming an issue back in the 70s and 80s. Shirley MacLaine, I remember that was kind of a big deal. Um, now it's, I think it's so commonplace, it's, most people don't even think about it. Um, but Gnosticism in the New Age, I think, is still around. Um, you see it in forms like Scientology. Um, but yes, I think that that's a good, um, good observation there, Rachel. So how would you bring Jesus in? Well, Jesus would be the messenger from the Plerima who would come. They would. So there's there's like parts of truth to that, right? Like, well, of course, Jesus it has come from the from the Father. He's taken on human flesh. They wouldn't say that he had taken on human flesh. The Gnostics would say, well, he only appeared. You know, the, the docetism, he only appeared to be um, uh, human. So, so good recap. Any questions on Gnosticism in the Gnostic Gospel? Okay, so uh, we'd asked for versions of this. Um, has anybody noticed, you know, this kind of stuff? And last week, Ariana had said the Enneagram. She said the magic word for, for me to uh, go on a little thing on that. And I said, oh, we don't have time to talk about that uh, last week. So I thought I would show um, what I think is probably the most predominant form of Gnosticism that you can identify in the church today. And that is uh, seen in the Enneagram. Um, but I did want to read a quote from um, who was our hero last week? Irenaeus. Remember Irenaeus was our hero last week? So um, this is, uh, I came across this quote, and I think it's fantastic. He's writing against a Gnostic called uh, Valentinus, like Valentine, but with the U.S. at the end. Valentinus. And Valentinus uh, had uh, his own way of describing this unknown God who dwelled in the, pl the Plerima. And this is, uh, uh, he's so, he, so Irenaeus is going to quote Valentinus, Valentinus here, okay? And you'll see why that I think that this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, let me see where to begin here. Um, he speaks about the audacity, Irenaeus, speaks about the audacity in the coining of names as he, that is Valentinus, has displayed without a blush in devising a nomenclature for his system of falsehood. So he's talking about the ways in which he's naming all of the, the things in the unknowable, the, the plerima, okay? For when he declares, quote, and so now this is Valentinus talking, there is a certain pro-arch, which means before all things, surpassing all thought, whom I call monotes, 
And again, with this monotes, there coexists a power which I also call henotes. Okay, so he's using like a play on words of one and only and before the beginning of things like that. And now uh, Irenaeus says, it is most manifest that he, Valentinus, confesses the things which he has said to be his own invention and that he himself has given names to his scheme of things which had never been previously suggested by any other. It's a pretty interesting observation there, right? He's saying, oh, so nobody has given the names of this, this unknowable deity except for you, okay? Um, it is manifest also that he himself is the one who has had sufficient audacity to coin these names. You would not know the names of the things that are the unknowable God if it weren't for Valentinus, basically is what he's saying. He had the audacity to coin the things that nobody's been able to name ever before. It's pretty convenient for Valentinus, right? So that unless he had, this, this is, he's, uh, uh, Irenaeus is writing about Valentinus again, uh, so that unless he, Valentinus, had appeared in the world, the truth would still have been destitute a name. Pretty fascinating. But in that case, nothing hinders anymore in dealing with the same subject to affix names after such a fashion as the following. So now what he's going to do, he's going to say, let me, let me kind of practice a little bit of what Valentinus does. I'm going to give you the names nobody's ever given before to describe this this unknowable deity, okay? And he says this, Irenaeus is, this is mocking here, think mocking. There's a certain proarch, royal, surpassing all thought, a power existing before every other substance and extended into space in every direction. But along with it, there exists a power which I term gourd. Now you're knowing why I like the other, why I like this. So here's this power I term gourd. And along with this gourd, there exists a power which, again, I term utter emptiness. And this gourd and emptiness, since they are one, produced and yet did not simply produce so as to be apart from themselves, a fruit everywhere visible, eatable and delicious, which fruit language calls a cucumber. A lot. This is funny, guys. <laughs> And along with this cucumber exists the power of the same essence, which again, I call melon. These powers, the gourd, utter emptiness, the cucumber, and the melon, brought forth the remaining multitude of the delirious melons of Valentinus. I like that. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. So, early Babylon B. That's early Babylon B, yes. That is very... Uh, through sarcasm and satire. I think it's fantastic. Okay, so let me show you where uh, the Enneagram is, and this is where you can follow along in your handout. Um, let me give you the background to the Enneagram. How many of you have heard the Enneagram? Oh. Raise it, show me hands again. Uh, who has heard of the Enneagram? Who has asked you what your Enneagram number is? How many of people that you know have told you what the Enneagram number is? How many of them have said, oh, you know why I do this? I'm, I'm a four with a three wing. Have you heard that? Okay, so a couple. Okay. 
Uh, so let me give you the story behind the Enneagram. Let me show you a couple of books. This is probably, have you seen this book around? Ian Cron's The Road Back to You, Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery. Anybody see this? This is published by University Press. This is probably the most popular um, Christian version of the Enneagram there is right now. There's another popular one called The Sacred Enneagram. Okay, the sacred Enneagram. See the sacred Enneagram? This is Christopher. Yeah. Do you see how I stamp these, by the way? I just say I love that stamp. Yeah. I think Paul gave me that as a gift one year. Heretical garments. For research purposes only. Lest anybody see this on my shelf and go, why do you have this for? Nah, read it. There's a stamp. It's got, got it stamped. Uh, those are a couple of the popular ones. Um, they will claim that the Enneagram is, um, is ancient in origin, oh, origin. And by the way, there's a diagram of it there in your handout, the Enneagram. Ennea is the Greek word for nine, like the number, nine, okay? Um, and then grandma, or gram, grandma, um, means uh, a writing or a drawing, um, something that is written, you know, like a telegram would be a, a written thing. Um, grandma teus is the Greek word for the scribes, so they did a lot of, of writing. So this would be a nine, a drawing of nine. So it's a drawing of nine points. And so let me give you kind of the uh, background behind this. This starts with a guy named uh, George Gurdjieff. G-U-R-D-J-I-E-F-F, -F. lived in the latter half of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. He's the one who came up with that drawing that you see. Now, he, uh, George Gurdjieff was uh, an, an esoteric teacher, like a mystic. Uh, uh, who are some of the people that would be on Oprah's television network. Deepak Chopra. Okay, think like that. Kind of a traveling teacher of esoteric ideas. Yeah. Deepak Chopra would be a good example. This basically what this guy is. He's from Russian, Armenian, Greek descent, I think, um, and uh, ended up coming to Europe. And so he was the one who developed that diagram that you see. He didn't connect it with personality types at all. It was just a diagram. And he would claim that if you studied that diagram, that could explain the entire world. And a lot of the background behind that, you notice it's got in nine, he had several laws. And again, these were crazy. Don't ask me to make sense of a lot of his teachings. Um, but they, he, he was very interested in mathematics. He was very interested in music. And so we have a lot of theories connected to that. Um, uh, how many remember this movie? Probably it's only Brandon or Brent. Um, there was a movie when I was a kid called Meetings with Remarkable Men. No? There's a movie basically about this guy and his teaching. And it was like in the cinematic movie theater, like 1979. So that's George Gurdjieff. Um, and he would say there was like... The laws of the, can somebody get their calculator out for me? So the laws of, he had the law of the three and the law of the seven. 
And this helps explain the law of the nine here a little bit. So if you're wondering, why did they come up with nine? So if you take the number, um, number three, and then connect it to that as the number six and the number nine. Um, again, don't let, that's a much longer explanation. So like, what's one divided by three? Point three three uh, infinitely, right? It keeps on going into infinite numbers. Ooh, that's fascinating. Um, what if you had the number six divided by, or number one divided by six? Is it point six six? So point one six six, you know, infinitely, and then the number uh, one divided by nine which would be like all ones, right, going on. So there, it was threes infinitely, six infinitely, and then one infinitely, okay? But here's the law of the seven. If you were to take the number one and divide it by seven, what does that come to? One, four, two, eight, five. Zero point one, four, two, two eight, eight, five, five, seven, one, seven, one, four, four. I'm guessing it would keep going. Two, eight, five, seven. Two, eight, five, seven. So there's your there's your infinite repeating number. It'd be one, four, two, eight, five, seven. Now, a couple things to notice about that. It's a six-digit re uh, repeating number, and it's missing three, six, and nine. So if single digits, this is you know this is again I'm just explaining the background behind this. Um, the number three gets you an infinite number of repeating decim you know, decimal numbers with threes. Uh, the six does it with six, nine does it with ones, and then if you have the law of the sevens, it reproduces the other six digits that doesn't have a three or a six or a nine in an infinitely repeating pattern. So to help you make sense of your drawing here, if you'll notice on the circle, uh, at the top is a nine, three, six, it's the triangle, okay? And then if you were to divide the circle up into equal parts around this way, you would start with 0 0.142, where do I go next? Eight? Oh, six, yeah, there's seven and eight, yeah, that's right. Two, eight, five, seven. Seven, one. one, and then it would repeat over and over and over again. So the um, that's important to this. It may not sound like it's important. Why are we doing this on a Monday night, coming together to talk about these numbers on the diagram? Um, because what we're going to see is that Gurdjieff had, he was trying to say that there's a mystical, magical explanation to the entire universe. And if you could look in the Enneagram and figure it out, you could explain everything in the universe, and everything in the universe can be explained in the Enneagram. That's, that's all he took it. That's as far as he took it. But one of his students was a guy named Ospensky. You, can, uh, you could go and get his <laughs> book, P.D. Ospensky. O-U-S-P-E-N-S-K-Y. He was a student of Gurdjieff's. He wrote a lot of Gurdjieff's teachings down. Um, 
in Search of the Miraculous is a book, is his book, B.D. Ospensky. Um, it's interesting. It's that book has in Gurdjieff, uh, the teachings of Gurdjieff are even worked into some uh, into some movies. Uh, so have you, have you guys seen the movie um, Saving Mr. Banks? Right, that movie. Okay, there's a scene right at the beginning, and uh, Ospensky's book is it cuts to one of the scene, and it's the book right there, um, in search of the miraculous and Ospensky, the teachings of Gurdjieff, basically. So. Um, he took his ideas and shared them with the world, including the diagram that you see on there. And then another student of, of his, of Gurdjieff's ideas through Ospensky, not, not directly, was a, was a man named Oscar Ichazo. I-C-H-A-Z-O, Oscar Ichazo. These are, yeah, these are great. They're great to pronounce, aren't they? Ichazo. I like saying Ichazo. And I'll give you the next one, Claudio Naranjo. I like Claudio Naranjo. Claudio Naranjo. Okay. These two have just recently passed away, actually. Um, uh, Oscar Ichazo was uh, a psychiatrist, um, but he was very interested in the occult very interested in these kind of uh, occultic uh, new age ideas and tried to incorporate some of those things into it. And so he took Gurdjieff's diagram and then he added um, some uh, of his psychiatry, psychology to it um, with ego fixations, which we won't get into, but this he kind of- Ichazo? This was Ichazo, okay. yeah. Uh, Claudio Naranjo is, um, and these are South Americans. I don't remember what city. I think he's from uh, Bolivia, and I think he's from uh, Chile. Echazo, uh, I think, was from Chile. I, I could be wrong, but um, Claudio Naranjo was also a study of uh, psychologist, and he was a student of Echazo's. Oscar Echazo had started a, a, a school called the Arica School in Arica, Chile where he would teach some of these ideas of Gurdjieff and you know, merging it together with psychiatry. And then Claudio Naranjo took it and he goes, oh, this sounds like we could bring in some Carl Jung and some person, and he started to f identify personality types with these. So he was kind of saying, oh, we could break up these into nine personality types. This Enneagram diagram doesn't exist anywhere else in, in history. Gurdjieff said he kind of got the idea from the, the Sufi Islam, mystical Islam, uh, but there's no evidence that they talked about anything like a, this diagram or a nine-pointed thing that explained the world. So as far as we know, it origin, the diagram originated with Gurdjieff. Oscar Ichazo got that through Ospensky, and he um, added some uh, ego fixations to that. And Naranjo goes, expands that even more, and he says, these are personality types. Now, I should say this. Oscar Ichazo got the idea for merging this number thing with his uh, psychology ideas through necromancy. So he did this by communing with individuals or spirits who were dead. Two in particular. One was called the Green Ketub, uh, and the other one was called Metatron. 
So if you're Detroit, not Megatron, not the <laughs> Detroit Tigers wide receiver, Metatron. 50-50 chance you are making up these names. <laughs> <laughs> am I not making, I am not making these up. Um, <laughs> so uh, the green Ketub and Metatron, yeah, these, these are the ones. And so he did that through uh, communing with the dead. Uh, Claudio Naranjo was the one when he got the idea, and you can find this clip on YouTube, you can see it, he's at a meeting with a bunch of uh, occultist persons, and they're talking about you know, his idea, where'd you get this idea for the Enneagram of personality? Um, and he's like, well, we used to say, you know, like Naranjo said, uh, you know, Ichazo said, and we, we used to, we got this from Sufi mystics, and he admits, he goes, we, we didn't, that, that's not accurate, we didn't really get it from that. And the guy goes, well, where'd you get it? And he goes, well, automatic writing. What that means is that he goes into a meditative state where then he just puts pen to paper whatever comes to him from, as he termed it in the video, higher sources. So he's, he's connecting to spirit, the spiritual world. So Claudio Naranjo, that's where he gets this, the, the Enneagram of personality. He goes to a place called Esalen, which uh, I remember this when I was a kid because we used to have, used to have stories about people who would have drug overdoses and stuff because this was not very far from my house. Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, which is a total like seeker, drugs, meditations, um, uh, alternative spirituality. Very deeply alternative spirituality. Esalen's on the coast in California, just south of San Francisco. Um, he uh, goes, and you could go there. You could still have a website. You could type in Esalen Institute. You could go see their website and see their whole list of teachers that are there. Um, Claudio Naranjo decides to go to the United States and teach this at the Esalen Institute. And he teaches these ideas, and at the seminar is a guy named uh, Father Robert or Bob Oaks, O-C-H-S, who is uh, a priest and uh, a professor, I believe, at Loyola, Chicago. And so he was there. Um, another woman by the name of Helen Palmer was also there at this seminar. Helen Palmer was uh, a psychic from San Francisco area. Uh, and Claudio Naranjo told everybody, um, don't go sharing these ideas. And all of these people then left the um, Big Sur, California, and then immediately began to share these ideas. And Helen Palmer went and taught these ideas as a, as a psychic and uh, wrote uh, one of the books that's one of the most popular books on the Enneagram. Uh, Helen Palmer did that. Uh, Robert uh, uh, Oaks started to teach it with some of his students at uh, Loyola, one of whom was uh, Father Mitch Pacwa, P-A-C-W-A, who embraced these ideas at first and then eventually wrote against them uh, and was against them. And he actually wrote this book back in the 90s called Catholics in the New Age. So he's a Catholic, but you would say he's a conservative Catholic and was very much against this kind of New Age stuff that was entering into the world. Called Catholics in the New Age. Uh, so Father Mitch Pacwa, right here. He has a whole chapter on the Enneagram. He warned about this stuff 25 years ago.
also had Paqua got it from Naranjo at the Esalen Institute, or he pa got it Paqua from got it from uh, Oaks. Bob Oaks. Okay. Yeah. He was one of his uh, students and got it right from Bob Oaks. And then um, Paqua and Oaks taught it to Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R. Richard Rohr, who is the author of many, many books. One of his most recent, I'm not sure if it's the most recent, but is called The Universal Christ. And in that book, he basically argues that Jesus and Christ are, you need to not think of them as the same person. Um, that there's Jesus, but then Jesus operating as Jesus, but then Jesus also operating as, as the Christ. Does that sound familiar? That sounds very much like the Gnostic idea of the adoptionism, right? Where the, the Christ, who is uh, one of the messengers from the pleroma comes down to share with you the divine knowledge, uh, and he adopts the human person, Jesus, but the Christ is never, is kind of around him, but never really on him. That's basically Richard Rohr's, uh, Richard Rohr's um, overall argument in that book, The Universal Christ. Richard Rohr is very popular and, and progressive, evangelical, um, progressive emerging church, very, very popular, and... Uh, he taught this to Ian Cron and uh, Suzanne Stabile. As a matter of fact, he wrote the endorsement on the back, one of the endorsements on the back, I think, on this one. No, he didn't do this one. He didn't do, he wrote the endorsement on, yes, he wrote the endorsement on this one. Um, but uh, Ian Cron tells you in this book that he learned this from Richard Rohr. <coughs> So, and the other one was Chris, uh, Christopher Hewards. Hewards. How do you spell that? H-E-U-E-R-T-Z. H-E-U-E-R-T-Z. Now, where am I going with this? What they will tell you, this is not just nine different personality types. The, they will say, you're not one of these nine types. You are in one of different pathways to God. That's how they would characterize this. You do not have one of nine personality types. That's usually how it's presented. But when you get into the readings, especially, it becomes even more clear in, in Hewart's book that this is, uh, you're not, this is not a personality type. This is your pathway back to your true self. So the argument for uh, spiritual growth, according to these Christian practitioners of the Enneagram, is that your true self, the real you, has been lost inside of a false you, a false identity that you have created for yourself almost your entire lifetime. And that what you need to discover is what is really true about you, and the ways in which to do that is to see the message that's in the Enneagram. You need to find out which, uh, uh, which ways that you have been, uh, one of the nine different false ways of being, and learn how to work your way back to wholeness, back to the real, back to the real you. 
And if that wasn't clear, you can get that quite clearly from the title of the book, The Road Back to You. The idea is the you that you know is not the real you. The real you is hidden, like a splinter in your mind. The real you is not really you. The real you is you, what you need to do to get back. Or as the subtitle says this, finding your new unique, your unique path to spiritual growth. Um, does that sound reminiscent of Gnosticism? The Gnostic idea was you're a, you're a spark or an emanation of the divine and you don't realize that you are a spark. You actually think that you're a part of this evil and material world. The twist of it on the Enneagram is not the, the hard material, immaterial duality. Um, it's between the real you and the not you. And does that correspond at all? Like the real you, the not you is tied to your physical material body and the real you is not or something like that? Not really, yeah. It doesn't have the, uh, both of them are kind of two ethereal yous as opposed to this, the, the immaterial part of you in the physical body, like the ancient Gnosticism, these, this newer form is uh, the, the you that doesn't, that is dissatisfied with the way that you behave, unhappiness, <coughs> you know, lack of joy, and those kind of things, those kind of things. That's a you, that's the false you, but it's still the immaterial. So it's not so much that there's, uh, you know, the, the immaterial in the body, and the body's evil, but the, material, the, the spiritual is, is good. It's that there's two, you need to think of them as egos and not spirit and body, but as two personalities. Maybe that's maybe, yeah, I don't know if that's a better way of saying it. So there are key elements that this has in common with sort of historical Gnosticism, but the surface outworking is very different. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, like they're both based on the secret knowledge. Yes. That's where one of the similarities would be. Yep, the secret knowledge. And the, the, the real you is not the you that you know. So the secret knowledge is going, accessing that, okay. you know, what do I need to do to access that? And you don't just learn that, like I, was, you know, like I was saying, through as we would through scientific means, through observation and the senses. It's through an experience. It's going through the spiritual path of the Enneagram. But yes, so there's differences between Gnosticism, but at its core root, that the you that you think you know is not the real you. The real you is the hidden part, and you just need to figure out how you can access it so that you can draw closer to God. That's, any other questions on that? Why would people get, I mean, it sounds very complicated. <laughs> Why would people be drawn to that and not this? I don't, I mean, maybe that's, <laughs> well, how would you respond? In what ways, from what we've presented about the Enneagram now, how would you contrast that, compare or contrast that with a biblical understanding of man? 
uh, and the world and God and Christ. One of the things about the Enneagram that I think is attractive to people is it focuses on them. Plus, you're not responsible for your personality type that you got diagnosed with by, by reading this whole thing. That's something that you can work out of, but you, everybody just has to forgive you because that's the way you are. Mm. And so there's no sin. You don't have to acknowledge any sin or any die to flesh. Uh, any of these aspects you can just let go because well that's how I just am but I'm on my own path and it also takes out the very inconvenient truth of Jesus Christ being the only way mm -hmm. so that they can all get to their spiritual revelation on their own yeah. and everyone can be enlightened to their spirit you know I mean like the Bible's boring and plus it says that there's only one way and that just seems you know I don't want to admit that I have sin, so I'll just say I have this type. Mm -hmm. And the people that I hear talking about it are like, well, as long as I just don't associate with those types. Hmm, interesting. Mm -hmm. And you're going to use this as a Christian perspective for how to you know, use God's gifts that he gave you. What if he's calling you to get along with that person? That's a really good insight. You you said that something about the um, the uh, sin. You there's there. What's the concept of sin in the enneagram? And there really there isn't. Uh, well, not to say that they don't mention sin, but but sin. I would say they, they mention it in similar ways to to the way uh, Barack Obama, when he was interviewed before he was elected president, he was asked. You know, to define sin, and sin, he said, was living in um, uh, living in conflict with my values. You know, so it, it wasn't like a sinning against a, a moral failure, a tragic moral failure against the holy God. It was sin was defined as I just didn't live according to the way. I should live, or I could live, or um, the, the best way to live. That is very similar to how they would characterize, if you listen to how they talk about sin in these books, um, you will see that that's kind of the understanding of sin. And the, um, another way that we would look at uh, sin is we would see it as inherent in our nature, coming from Adam that the biblical understanding would be that we are all um, we, we sin because we're sinners so uh, we're not sinners because we sin although that's true but at its root we sin because we're acting out of our nature as fallen in Adam does that make sense? and so we would say at our very nature we're fallen and there's nothing that we could do. We were never, uh, we were never morally in an upright state. We weren't even morally neutral. We came into the world uh, depraved, unable to to be uh, right with God. The the Enneagram would approach would say, there the real you is actually good. 
You just need to get back to the real you that was originally good. Uh, as a matter of fact, he says, um, Ian Cron says it this way at one of the last pages of the book here. I think it is the last page. Um, it says this, in his landmark work, New Seeds of Contemplation, the Catholic monk Thomas Merton wrote, for me, to be a saint means to be myself. Let me say that again. He's quoting Merton who says, for me, to be a saint means to be myself. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I am and discovering my true self, end of quote. And then Cron says, though it has taken me 20 years to grasp the meaning of Merton's insight, I understand it now. We most delight and reflect the glory of God when we discover and reclaim our God-given identity with which we lost connection shortly after our arrival in this fallen world. Okay, now, he uses some terms like fallen world, lost connection with God, so it has enough of a thing to kind of, where Christians would say, well, that has a resonance of truth there. But what did he say? Real salvation is going back to my true self that I had shortly after my arrival into the world. Did you catch that? Uh, that's not the only place. If you go in many places in that book and also in the, the other Enneagram works here, just looking at this doctrine, just the doctrine of mankind, their understanding of mankind would be that man was basically good. And he's lost touch with God by losing touch of who he was sometime in early infancy. And that's exactly what Ichazo was teaching. That you fell into one of nine, uh, again, not personality types, uh, ego fixations. Something happened in your early childhood that caused you to behave in a certain pattern of living. <laughs> yeah, you were born. Huh? Yeah, you were born. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the biblical, the biblical view would be what? Original sin. We're born of sin. We're brought forth into sin. Yeah. So just looking at that one doctrine alone, we could do this with every single one of these doctrines, but yeah, would, you have some questions. Yeah. If you were to take this, mush it together with actual Christianity, put it in a church with a southern accent, you have Joel Osteen. Yeah. <laughs> you are a conqueror. You are a champion. Mm -hmm. You do this. You do this. You are so awesome. And what's the, oh, that small disconnect is that you are a little God because you're a little spark. Mm -hmm. So you're just, you know, you fell here. Yeah. So, it, so it's the whole little God theory, too. Yeah. It's a little, the little God. I, this perfect insight. And what's your, what's your way out of that? This guy calls it sacred. What would, what would you call sacred? He says this thing, following this path, 
of observation and insight with the way you interact with other people and what your patterns of behavior are. If you look at some of these Enneagrams, what they will say is, let's say, uh, this number here. So let's say, um, so I was, I was told I was a four. Let me give a little backstory. Can I give a backstory here uh, before we get too far? Um, so when I, when I started at Mars, Mars Hill, um, I was interviewing. They, uh, and I was further along in the interview, and they said, yeah, you got the job. Read these books. And they gave me two books. They gave me one by Rizzo and Hudson, who were also at Esalen, um, at the Esalen Institute. So they're teachers in the Enneagram. And the other one was by Helen Palmer. So I just get hired at a Christian church, and I was given these two books. I didn't know this until years later. And I was like, who is this Helen Palmer? Oh, she has a psych psychic. <laughs> she has a psychic business in San Francisco. That was the book I was given, those two books. Anyway, um, so I was told, here, read these books, and then take this test. I had to go take this online test. It took me an hour, and I took this test, and it gave me a number. I don't remember which one it was. I think it was a seven or something like that. I was equally a seven and equally a different number. And, um, and then I had a shorter test that I gave it to Janet. You remember this? And I gave you, I said, hey, answer some of these about me. And she went and answered some of these back about me, and it scored me a different number than the two that I'd been given. And so, uh, so then I report back. I was supposed to report what my score was back to my supervisor. And my supervisor goes, no, no, no. Yeah, that was wrong. You're a four. <laughs> and so for the rest of my time on our staff, I had to, and I was like, well, maybe I am a four. And so I would read about fours. And well, kind of, kind of describes me, but did seven also describe me? Okay, well, and so I, would, I was pigeonholed into operating as a four. In this, in this scheme. By the way, there's no peer-reviewed scientific things behind any of this. This isn't like this was presented to a whole bunch of psychologists or uh, you know, things like that. This is purely in the mind of Oscar Ichazo as he's communicating with Metatron in the, the green cartoon. <laughs> this is where it comes from. Or, no, or Claudio Naranjo, is, who's going into automatic writing. He's going into uh, a cultic meditative state and then is writing down what ideas he's given. Or George Gurdjieff, who hasn't heard of base 12. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the base 12 for, oh, for, the, for mathematics. Yeah, because, you know, one divided by seven. Look, it, it keeps repeating. <laughs> Pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm not Gurdjieff. I think he was just kind of a, but mostly a con artist. Uh, but it was brought together with these. But here's the point. Here's the point. So, so I had to identify in this. So, the, and then I realized, okay, so this is how I behave with my other people in my on my team. Then I realized, no, no, you're you. That's not it. When you get down to it, when you see these numbers, when when you see the literature, they'll have arrows. So from one to four, there will be an arrow. This is the this is uh, disintegration. You're moving away from wholeness because you're moving away from the number one, right? You're moving this way. That's disintegration. So what you need to do is you come to an awareness of your patterns of behaving the way that you are, and then a healthy person would be in this direction. So if you look at some of them and you see the diagram, it would be like the one that you have there. That's that's uh, Gurdjieff's. 
But some of the other ones will have arrows on them in the direction. And there's arrows of disintegration where you're moving away to unhealthy and unwhole patterns of living. And what you really need to do is reverse them and move into integration. Here's the point. It's not a personality profile. This is not a personality profile. This is a theology. And it's a Gnostic theology at best. It's definitely not a biblical theology. None of these people were, were Christians. In the remote sense. Now, uh, Richard Rohr is often termed the one who gives a Christian perspective on the Enneagram. But like, I think you mentioned her name last week, Marcia Montenegro, who was on the podcast. What's her Elisa name? Childers. Elisa Childers podcast, mm -hmm. where she talks about this. She said, she describes it really well, um, that it's often said that Richard Rohr gives the Christian perspective on the Enneagram. And she says, it's impossible for him to give the Christian perspective on the Enneagram because he doesn't hold to the Christian faith. He has wildly, vastly different understandings about God and salvation and man's nature and the world and Jesus Christ and atonement that they're not even, they're not even Christian at all. Um, so this, that's the point. This is, uh, if you wanted to see Gnosticism in the church... I'm trying to think of another example of Gnosticism that's clearer in the church than the Enneagram. This is it. This is it. There's examples of Gnosticism outside of the church, and I think transgenderism would be one. Transgenderism is Gnostic, even closer to the origin, original understanding of Gnostic, right? Um, my body is one gender. But the re my real gender is that. That's, that's a Gnostic idea, too. So any questions on thoughts, questions? I'm just thinking about what the epistemology is for all of these books. And it reminds me of... Um, I was hearing a discussion about, I was listening to a discussion about Freud the other day, and the discussion was kind of like, well, why is, why is he revered when, you know, nothing he did actually used the scientific method, and, you know, we don't actually trust it at all today, and he kind of said that what he was really doing was just, you know, he had an intuition, and then he just assumed that it was right, and I feel like maybe that's part of what these people are doing like it, they're merely I mean if, if we take you know in, if we have a sort of merciful view of them we think they, they had an intuition that they followed and weren't um, critical of so maybe mm -hmm. Kirjeef was actually a con man and intentionally deceiving people or something but it's just making me think uh, what are our tendencies in terms of how we accept things. Um, and I certainly agree that the appeal to self and um, so forth probably plays a part, but I'm just mm -hmm. thinking a lot about how uh, 
there's this temptation to to have an intuition and just run with it, just not think critically mm. about it at all. Like, how could you? I don't know. How could you come to these conclusions with any degree of criticism? tendency to to deceive ourselves like to want to be deceived or you know or you know, the heart is deceitful of all things who can understand it or like Paul says in in Romans chapter 1 one of the characterizations of the fall of mankind is to suppress the truth of what can be known about God we talked about this many times um, that uh, that man in his unrighteousness wants to suppress the truth about God because if you actually let uh, and I give the, the image one of my professors would describe it as a, trying to hold a beach ball underwater uh, you're, you're fighting in, in any way you can to suppress the truth about God and his righteousness underwater because if it comes up then now you have to deal with it you have to deal with what your fallen state is with that God so it's you know monkey see or whatever it's called with the monkeys you know I don't want to see I want to hear that kind yeah. of strikes me in contrast to the Enneagram right because what you're just describing is finding realizing the real you is a sinful person who needs a savior mm. whereas the Enneagram real you is a holy being who who is good mm. you know like just like the stark contrast between the two. yeah yeah, that's it, right? Like, it really is, it kind of is a glorification of the self. Mm -hmm. And who? And what self doesn't want that? Yeah, what <laughs> self, what, you know, it's every sinful self, my sinful self wants that. Yeah. Yeah, good, good my, point. I have a thought or a question. A lot of the conversations that I've had with some of the people in my life who have fallen into this belief is sounds like to them the Holy Spirit is their answer like if you like the Holy Spirit is the secret knowledge mm. like mm. you just have to figure out how to harness the Holy Spirit so that you can provide healing and direction to your life but you don't need to read the Bible because the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit it's a, it's a weird it's a yeah. So I guess my, my question was like how, how did how do you fit the the third member of the Trinity into the, the Gnostic worldview? Or do they just not have they just don't factor that in at mm. all? Because in the Nar the, a lot of the Nar 
uh, beliefs like Bill Johnson and Brian Duke and Stephen Furrier, it's like they just they say everything right, nothing sounds wrong, like you know, just taking English at its word. But then when you look deeper, it's literally this. And it's just mind boggling. Mm -hmm. Even though it's not mind boggling, it makes sense, but it's mind boggling because they when you just hear them talk, it just makes sense. Right? And then the answer is just, oh, the Holy Spirit. Like, mm. he just provides, you know, you just have to have faith, and, you know, it'll provide you your answer. It's like, I guess, like, is there, am, I, am I understanding this or differently than, like, I don't know. Yeah, so what they're, they're, they're <coughs> what they're terming, if, if I could restate it a little bit, is that when they feel a prompting or um, something like that, like a, an, an explanation. I heard from God. Or I, I, yeah, or, okay. Like, you know, I heard this from God, or I have a word for you, and it's like, under what like basis? Like You can't just say that because you want to say what you have to say with some level of importance and gravity behind it. Like, yeah, yeah. It's just very interesting. And so then... Like, it almost sounds like an excuse. Like, they don't have to provide a, a legitimate theological background. They just, their excuse is, oh, it's, you know, this spiritual mm. realm force of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So in that, in that, in the case of, like, the, that you just gave, would you ask, how do you, how do we know that that's not you and that you're claiming the Holy Spirit, you're claiming the Holy Spirit as kind of a, an authority by which but the source and origins of what you just told me well, is, the, is actually you. <laughs> right. Well, and the, their response to that would be, well, because Jesus had the Holy Spirit and we're supposed to live like Jesus, essentially. Yeah. And I'm sure they, depending on who you ask, you might get a different response. But essentially what they're saying is like Jesus of the Gospels came to show us how to live um, righteously. You know, he gave us, you know, the, what are the two greatest commandments? Like he gave us all these you know, radical teachings and he did so many miracles and he did all these amazing things so why, why can't we do that? Mm. And then they get into the whole like apostle, like, apost like actual, like there's the apostles and we're, like, there's now, now there's modern day apostles with like yeah. prophecy and it's, it's like interesting. Like, yeah. I, I'm not, not like academically knowledgeable enough to have the history and to but it just doesn't add up. Yeah. Well, there there is a there's a connection here that you touched on that um, one of the beliefs that you just described was the um, the splitting of the uh, deity of the corrupted spirit of Christ um, was uh, a man in right relationship with God. Not that he was fully God and fully man, but he was a man in right relationship. And that is what we need to be striving for. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to um, the, well, you didn't like the term, but basically the, the dueling, the split that we are this, but we want to be, we want to strive for this, the right relationship. Um, that's where a lot of those, the uh, Stephen Furtick stuff, the, their, the root is, and that's, that's where the word of God, where the Jesus Yeah, to be clear, he was. You were saying the the nar view, the yes. new apostle. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
that Jesus lived in right relationship with God and not so he was fully God and fully God. Yeah. So would they reject the idea that he was fully God and fully human? Well, some of the Christian friends that I know <coughs> who love this teaching would dis would would dis would uh, not agree with that. They would say, "No, he was fully God," but they're being influenced by and and you know reading uh, articles and and information and watching videos and podcasts and sermons from every like a, a bunch of teachers who don't or yeah. who do believe that. Who but don't believe that. Jesus was fully God, or who simply downplay it and shift the focus to this idea of human and right relationship with God. Yeah. The latter. Yeah. You'll come across some pretty blatant statements that that basically say that he was in right relationship with his, his creator, right relationship. Just as human. Yes. Yeah. Most will dance around it a bit. They'll say, no, he was he was fully God and fully man. But in Bill Johnson's new book, he literally, his devotional book, did you guys talk about this already? No, huh? Um, he, he gives the verse on the January 3rd entry. I took a photo of it, and I told Baker Bookhouse, you need to get this off your shelf. This is not a Christian <laughs> book. Um, um, so he gives the verse from John 5.19. Then Jesus answered them, and then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. And so Johnson's devotion is, in the New Testament, the very word for salvation means healing, deliverance, and forgiveness of sin. The kingdom brings the complete solution to the whole man, and we have access to that reality even now, just as Jesus did throughout his life. Many believers think miracles and power are for extra special anointed people of God. Many get hung up on the idea that Jesus did miracles as God, not man. In reality, Jesus had no ability to heal the sick. He couldn't cast out de devils, and he had no ability to raise the dead. He said of himself, the son can do nothing of himself. He set aside his divinity. He did miracles as a man in right relationship with God because he was setting forth a model for us, something for us to follow. So he is saying that Jesus is divine because he says he set aside his divinity. And he says that when he came to earth, he set aside his divinity, that following that verse that they do in Philippians where they twist the verse and say that he, he was only a man while he was on earth in right relationship with God. Wow. And he, the other entry that I didn't do that is Gnosticism too is he says that repent is um, a misunderstood understood term. It just means that we need to go back because it talks about pent as a penthouse suite. So it's just going back to the upper place. So we just have to, if, if we've done something wrong, we just need to take ourselves out, go back, and sit next to God on the throne and see from his perspective. Wow. See ourselves from God's perspective. Because there's, there's no, re there's, repent doesn't mean turn 180 degrees. It just means go back to your place that you belong in the heavenly realm next to God. It, I was sweating as I read it in the store. I'm like, what is this doing in here? Wow. 
That's when you move to the back of the bookstore. I want to buy them all and burn them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I said, I don't want to give them the money because their publishing house is destiny image and it's bring kind of the, freaky. Bring the stamp. Yeah, avoid mornings and evenings with the celestial Gnosticism of Bill Johnson. Yes. Wow. It's, I mean, it's, oh yeah, there's the gold dust in the, oh. it's the river of celestial, I mean, it's like, it's pretty freaky. Well, the verse right before that is very interesting. Um, he can do all things with a verse taken out of context. Look at that. Can oh. you imagine? Yeah. Uh, so if, if I'm not misrepresenting what he's saying there is that he's saying that Jesus did this as a man, that he did not do this as God, that there is that, that whatever hypostatic union was taking place of Jesus as God man um, in is broken. At least is there, I'm not, not broken. He set it aside. He set it aside. Okay, so yes, broken. There you go. Okay. Um, um, okay. So that was verse 19, John 5 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only that which he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Okay. Let, let's back up a little bit. Okay, so he had just done. Um, this miracle of healing at the pool on the Sabbath. Um, and so the guy took up his bed and walked. Um, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because... He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Okay, You're supposed to put those two together, that what you see me doing is what you're seeing the father doing. Okay, So that, that already starts to break down the thing that, that, no, this wasn't, this was Jesus. Well, I mean, you suppose you could argue that this is Jesus in right relationship with God is able to do that. But that, I don't think that that's what he's saying there. When he says, my father's working until now, and I am working. Because at the least next, not the most natural interpretation. That of would not word. be the most natural, yeah. yeah. Especially the next verse. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So that's not Jesus operating... You know what I mean? Like that's not Jesus operating in relationship with God. That's Jesus equal with God. Which is the title of the verse of 18 in my Bible. Jesus is equal with God. Jesus is equal <laughs> with God. Yes. The um, authority of the Son is for 19. But it, yeah, the, it's Philippians 2, 7. Oh, yeah. Where it's, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So... They say that he emptied himself of his deity, that he was just became man. Yeah. Instead of that. Yeah. Yeah, that verse that verse gets used that way, uh, um, often. And the um, Greek word escapes me there a little bit. 
Um, so the Philippians two seven, right? I'm going to kick myself once I see what the Greek word is here. Um, I have a cord and stuff. Oh, you do? You want to use it? Oh, kanao. Yes. That's the, that's to empty or to pour out. Um, or metaphorically is what the footnote here in the ESV study Bible says. That this is used metaphorically to give up the status and privilege. That's in what verse? This is in the, um, this is, I'm reading the, e, the ESV study Bible note. Does this mean, they ask the question, does this mean that Christ temporarily relinquished his divine attributes during his earthly ministry? ministry? This theory is known as kenosis, that's the word I was trying to find, or self-emptying, and is not in accord with the context of Philippians or early Christian theology. Paul is not saying that Christ became less than God or gave up divine attributes. He's not even commenting directly on the question of whether Jesus was fully omnipotent or omniscient during his time on earth. Nor is he saying that Christ ever gave up being in the form of God. Rather, Paul is stressing that, who uh, that Christ, who had all the privileges that were rightly his as king of the universe, gave them up to become an ordinary Jewish baby bound for the cross. Christ made himself nothing by taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men. Those are roughly equivalent statements there. So, yeah, that's the, the kenosis, that, that's fundamental, that, that view of the kenosis theory is fundamental to the New Apostolic Reformation uh, type thing. Jesus laid aside his divinity um, What's the, the verse that say in the Passion Translation? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. What's the passage, though, that you were reading from? I was reading from the ESV Study Bible note. No, no, but what? Oh, Philippians 2.7. Okay. Yeah, Philippians 2.7. We're going to, in subsequent lessons, we're going to get into the idea, to uh, the nature of Jesus as God and man. That's going to become an issue in the latter half of the second century, third century. Uh, so we're going to get into some of these things, which will, I think, directly relate to the NAR stuff. Um, so that might come back up. If you, um, I only, I only kind of see some of the NAR stuff every now and then. You know, I'm, so I see some bits of it. If you have more specific quotes like that, please send them my way. I'd be, yeah. <laughs> so if you have a notebook or some way of kind of keeping those things and, and um, bring those here, because if you're you're wondering, like, I don't know if this is the case for you, but if you're, it was like it was for me with uh, Trey, my friend that I worked with at Crackerboro and Aldern. Um, you know, I had this guy who was a Christian friend who became an atheist, and I would try to witness to him, and he would come back with these challenging things that I didn't know how to respond to and so I would go home that night and I have an answer and the next day he'd hit me with another one and so I had kind of collected a whole notebook of uh, responses to him you probably feel the same way with some of your friends if you get those you know document those and bring those for us to to get to I think we're going to get to a couple of those in the coming weeks I, I don't really talk to them that much anymore just because 
I have no need to, and I don't see him on a regular basis like yeah, I okay. you know, used to used to for school or whatever. But I feel like there's so much of it out there that you would need semi-trucks, <laughs> not a notebook. <laughs> and I feel like it's almost every book on the bookshelf in a Christian store is almost every preacher that is like on a Christian network or podcast or I <laughs> maybe it's just my <laughs> Where I'm at right now, but I I feel like I can't get away from it. Mm. Like it's everywhere. Yeah, and your your antenna might be up, you know. Oh, that's true. Losing it, but that's. But I think you're right. I think it it's everywhere. Well, they use all the right Christian terms, Mm. so all the meanings of all the real terms that we maybe have known for a long time are all new and stolen by the enemy and twisted and so now you know it used to be okay to say that there were some supernatural things that happened in your Christian walk but don't say it now because <laughs> <laughs> it could they, be yeah, twisted yeah, and, you know. yeah and you know there's mm-hmm. just it's um, it, it, the whole it, everything is everything is stolen mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know Charismatic's not a bad word, but it is now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and evangelical, it's not a bad word, but it is now. Mm-hmm. You know, they had roots that were really Christian, and now you have to use air quotes around everything, yeah. you know? So we're going to hit some of these. So I think we're going to come back to some of the NAR ones, especially as it comes to the identity of Christ. Um, any other questions on this before we move on? Maybe Because then we could hit the, the uh, other half of the lesson for tonight. But I wanted to make sure, like, we, before we moved on from this, and maybe there would be some follow-up, like, okay, how, how do I talk to people about this? Maybe that could be um, something, but... No? Good? How do I talk to people about the Enneagram? Yeah, if you know anybody who are Enneagram yeah. practitioners. and Yeah, ask that question and answer that question, please. Unpack that. How to talk with them about yeah. it? I, I say, love the Enneagram. Dude, you're into the occult? <laughs> I would just read them the Irenaeus quote. <laughs> About the gourd. I don't think they would even register, honestly. Yeah. I really don't think it would. Yeah. Yeah, that's a... Uh, I, um, because, not to interrupt you, but... Oh, go ahead. Basically what they would say is, Oh no, I might not believe with some of the theology behind it, but I like to use it as a tool to supplement how I understand human interaction. Myself you know, sure, and myself. how I interact. Yeah, how to better understand other people and how what they're coming, like where they're coming from. How me as a two interacts mm-hmm. with this person as a yeah. seven. They're not necessarily yeah. defending the Gnostic belief that, you know, sure. everyone's a mini god because of the plur- what is it called? Plur- Plurama. Plurama, yeah. yeah. They don't, even, they don't even know that part. Right. They don't even they don't know that part for one. And then for two, they're not necessarily defending it because they don't know it. So they're just taking the surface level, oh, you know, yeah. twos are like this, so therefore yeah. they use it as a tool. Yeah. A diagnostic tool. Yeah. And then they don't think it's bad. Right. But well, then, uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was my question back would be, isn't the Bible enough of a tool? Oh, I, I made that point, but th- I mean 
their point is, yeah, sure, but like, why not use this to help them? They use it in conjunction with that. Yeah. yeah. The same reason why they, they like or the Passion Translation, because they, they like they, they, the whole truth, yeah. the ESV and the, the King James Version. But like, you know, the Passion also can provide a, a, a different perspective that is makes it easier to understand. Uh, well, this this book was was a really good book. This I mentioned the uh, Marcia Montenegro. She was the one that was on the Alyssa Childers podcast several months ago. I don't know. It was back in the spring, wasn't it? No. Actually, I had to go back to find it for Laura. It was over a year ago. Oh, that was Beginning over a year ago. October. Oh, okay, yeah. So she wrote a book, and it's it, it's very very good. And so, um, but she addresses. I don't remember where it is in here. The pragmatic, like, well, this is useful. I feel like it's a useful thing, and if it's harmless, and it's it's is it useful for me to to use to help understanding the personality things? She, I think she has a quip in there or a response like, "Would you consider um, uh, like astrology to be an appropriate and useful thing for Christians to do?" And usually the answer would be, "Well, no," and. Um, what she's getting at is that this really has, but, but millions of people out there do astrology and feel like that explains my day. I read my horoscope or whatever, and it explained my day, and I was able to see and how know what interactions I was going to have. And um, similarly, she doesn't say this one, but similarly, like somebody had brought up Scientology earlier, there's millions and millions of people who are into Scientology and believe that it's a, a healthy way of understanding interpersonal relationships, you know. Um, but there is a theology that under uh, that um, undergirds it. And so maybe that could be a thing to ask. And so, so, you know, you, uh, so you, what you're telling me is that it's a very practical and useful tool. Do you feel, feel like the theological foundations under it uh, don't matter to the practicality or the pragmatic side of it? You know, so questions like that. Because it, it, and you could ask the questions like the horoscope and stuff, it seems that the underlying theology would matter if it was Scientology, and it would matter if it was a horoscope. Would it equally matter for the Enneagram that, that has no Christian origins? Right comes from the occult, and then you could say from the green ketub. You could say that to you. See how that from the the green ketub. Q apostrophe T U B. I think it's an Islamic. That's where that's where Ichadzo he communed with the green ketub. And Metatron. And Metatron. Yeah. <laughs> well not Megatron. Metatron. I can hear too the other comment of somebody if you bring up the you know valid points. If something's demonic, can it be used for good? You know, and yeah. I mean, if its origins are demonic, and then you can hear the the Christianese response back, well, everything that is evil, that was meant for evil, God can turn to good. Mm. Like, okay, you know, yeah. well, what he meant for your harm? Okay. <laughs> can't talk to you anymore, <laughs> you know, just, yeah. you know, those conversations after a while, you're like, really... I hope the preachers who say you can't lose your salvation are right, <laughs> because I have to leave this now. I have to go away. I can't talk to you anymore. Uh, yeah. Well, um, we could come back 
to the Enneagram anytime. I've talked to anybody anytime about the Enneagram, if you could, couldn't tell. Uh, let's go to number, let's go to the second half. And so we're going to have to blaze through this one here. Um, but let me give you the heretics, Marcion. And we'll make this kind of an open interchange dialogue. Just interrupt me. I don't, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, Marcion, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. How many of you have heard of Marcion before? Nobody? Rachel has heard the name. Rachel's heard of Marcion. Yep, see the five. Okay. Um, let me give you let me give you some of my notes on Marcion. Uh, Marcion was from uh, the region of Pontus. You remember the region of Pontus in Acts chapter two. Just, just Paul's describing all of, or uh, Luke is describing all of the different regions that, where they came from. He was a wealthy shipbuilder. Um, it was reported. I don't know where this was, that his father was actually a bishop in the church, um, and he became a religious teacher in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, he uh, spread his teaching around Asia Minor before going off to Rome to try to hit it big, I think. That, that part I added. Um, but his teaching everywhere was given when it came into the context of leaders in the church. They all rejected it. Uh, one, uh, one commentator said that uh, Marcion had the unique ability to, um, he was such a polarizing figure that even the, the, the groups in the church, East and West, the, the, the Latin church and the Greek church, uh, would have contentions over various things. They all had bad things to say about Marcion. Uh, so they were, um, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So that was that kind of thing. Uh, so he was universally rejected by every leader who was a leader anywhere. And so usually if you have a teaching like this and you peddle it out to various leaders of churches and they all reject you, then what do you do? You go back to the drawing board? No, you set up a rival church, which is what he did. Right? This is what you do. So basically he grew up, uh, he grew in influence. His teaching was spreading really quickly. I think it was Tertullian who was our hero. The hero there is Tertullian, T-E-R-T-U-L-L-I-A-N. He said it was, he, uh, he was planting churches as fast as wasps build nests. He was uh, just, I don't know, just a go-getter. Like he was, he was so intense, intensely behind his ideas that uh, his influence grew very well. His years, did, are the years blank or did they, are they on there? What was that? One, two, two, five, two, That's for Tertullian? Yeah. Okay, what's Marcion? 80 to 160. So 80 to 160. Okay, yeah. So 80 to 160. So that puts us where? He's a contemporary of John's then. John the Apostle, like who died about 95. So he's a contemporary of John's disciples like Polycarp and Ignatius of Antioch, if you remember from our timeline. Um, so he really started his teaching ministry in the first half of the second century, so really early. So um, let me give you a couple of uh, things about his teaching. He's best known, well, maybe not best known. One of the things that he's most known for is that he's the first one to have stated what an official canon of scripture is. Okay? Marcion. Marcion was. Okay? He was the first person to basically say, these books are scripture and these are not. 
And so canon, I think, Rosie, you, one week, you, I think you used the word canon, right? Did somebody use the word canon? C-A-N-O-N. The canon means it's the, the Greek word for a ruler or a measuring stick, something by which to, to gauge something. Um, so think of, a, think of a yardstick. So he would say, uh, so he would say, these books line up with the, uh, these books are official scripture, these are not. He was really the first one to do that, to say these are in and these are out. And so he, in his canon, he rejected all of the Old Testament. None of the Old Testament was, was Christian, according to Marcion. <laughs> Here's what his, uh, his canon of scriptures, of official scriptures were. Uh, he had an abbreviated version of Luke's gospel only. Anything Jewish really had to go for Marcion. Anything, and you'll see why here in a moment. Anything Jewish really had to go. Matthew was very Jewish gospel. Couldn't use that. Um, not sure why Luke or Mark was thrown out. John, again, too Jewish. But Luke, he's a Gentile, right? He was one of Paul's missionaries um, that, he, uh, that he meets in, in his journeys in Acts. And so he takes his gospels, except he takes all of the birth narratives out. So basically he took a razor blade to the Luke's gospel and had portions of Luke's gospel. So no birth narratives. He had 10 of Paul's letters. Now, how many, how many letters did Paul write in the New Testament? 13. So he left three out. He left the pastoral letters out. He left 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus out. Um, Galatians was moved to the top in the list. He really liked what Paul had to say about very anti-law, anti very strongly anti-law. He liked that. So no Matthew, no James, no Hebrews, all of those out. Uh, he loved to show the contradictions between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, he, was, he felt that Paul was really the only true apostle, that all of the original 12 Jewish apostles ended up Judaizing, according to his view. We saw Judaizing a couple weeks ago, right? He feels like all of the other 12 disciples had all Judaized, they all became false. He practiced a very uh, literal interpretation of Scripture. Um, he believed... Uh, Jesus' death did purchase human salvation, but that Jesus raised his own soul from the grave. Probably the main thing to notice, though, is that he had a very strong contrast between um, the Jewish law and between the gospel, and in more, more specifically, uh, a very strong contrast between the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament. And so much so, the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament were two entirely different gods. The God of the Old Testament was the creator who was a God of law and justice. But the previously unknown God of the New Testament was Jesus, who is the God of mercy and salvation. Does that sound familiar? What do you think yeah. some of his influences were? 
Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen. <laughs> <laughs> a little, a little anachronistic, but that, that's. <laughs> uh, so the God of the Old Testament was was bad and evil. Sound reminiscent? The demigod. The demiurge, right? The yeah, the demiurge. So he he did have Gnostic influences. He wasn't entirely Gnostic. He he liked some of those ideas, and he did incorporate those. That's exactly right. Um, it's just convenient this idea that well there's one God who's real mean and I don't like him and then there's this other God who's really nice and I do like him and I agree with everything he says mm -hmm. he's got 2.0 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like to do the upgrades there um, it's interesting though that he thought Paul was the only real apostle Yeah. when it seems like modern people who are maybe more close to his beliefs would be like the opposite, where they're like, oh yeah, Paul, he was awful, you know? So yeah. trust Paul. Yeah. That, that's a good observation. I think that happens a lot today. There's a pitting of Paul with who? With Jesus. Jesus. With, with Jesus, yeah. Okay. You're getting ahead of me there, Gabe. The, the, <laughs> more, the more recent statement of, I, I love Jesus, but I tolerate Paul. Oh man, yes. Who was that? Yeah, are you pulling the Owen Strand? <laughs> so Owen Strand, who's a professor at a, a Baptist strip mall seminary, they call it, but a Baptist <laughs> seminary. Um, he is uh, he's on a radio program that's based in the UK, right? It's that I forget that guy's name. Uh, anyway, um, and it's with an Episcopal priest or something like that, and the the person that he's, Owen oh, Strand is debating is, is uh, he's African American and you can tell he's influenced by like Jane Combe and um, oh, he's head, head bong into primary, yeah, primary right uh, liberation, you know, black liberation theology and um, anyways the, the guy says um, I, I love Jesus or I worship Jesus but I tolerate Paul which guy says that? Though? Not Owen Strand, the other guy. Okay. But Owen Strand's face is now a, gif, a gif. Yep. gif. Gif? 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 Gif. It's not a gif. It's not a gif. Yeah. So he's saying that because he doesn't like Paul's teaching? He's saying yes, because yes. he does. He, he, he loves Jesus, he tolerates Paul. So he's creating a... This is this is the this is the new versions of Marcionism. Okay, to, we'll look at two ways that Marcionism really influences the church today. A hard distinction between the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament, or the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, um, and then uh, a questioning a little bit of the the canonicity of the Bible. So those are those are the two legacies of Marcion. Uh, so I'll get to I'll explain that here in a moment. But let me give you a summary. Here's a summary that um, um, uh, historian Everett Ferguson says about Marcion. Marcion distinguished between the Creator and Redeemer gods. Judgment belongs to the Creator, and redemption to the Father, the unknown God before the coming of Christ. The Old Testament was the revelation of the Creator, the God of the Jews, who worked evils and was self-contradictory. Jesus Christ was uh, not the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament, but a revelation of the God of love. Okay, so he wasn't the 
wasn't the predicted Messiah of the Old Testament because he didn't want to have anything to do with the Old Testament. Instead, he was an entirely different uh, deity who just revealed the love of God. Uh, continuing on, this Christ was not born but simply appeared. Remember, he had cut the birth narratives out. So he just wanted to appear. Maybe that had Gnostic origins because of the, you know, the Christ just coming as one of the, the divine messengers from the, the Pleroma. Uh, he seemed to suffer, and he raised himself from the dead. The original disciples of Jesus had Judaized, so the Father called Paul to restore the true gospel. But his, his epistles were interpolated by Judaizers, so Marcion had to restore the true readings. Just like all cult leaders. Just like every <laughs> cult leader, right? It's like, like yeah, what do you got to do? Well, I'm going to start a rival church now. So, Okay, so here's the, here, here's the hero. Um, there, and like I said, there were lots of people who wrote against Marcion and condemned Marcion. Um, Paul, Polycarp, I believe it was Polycarp, actually called Marcion the spawn of Satan. I think he actually called him that. Um, but Tertullian wrote a book called Five, Five Books Against Marcion, or sometimes it's just called Against Marcion. And it's a big book. Uh, I just printed out chapter four, and it was a hundred pages, or book four, and it was a hundred pages uh, long. Um, Tertullian, here's two quotes that, that Tertullian is most famous for. Um, in one, in his apology for, um, for Christians, he, he, um, he basically encourages, uh, I forget the emperor or whoever he's talking to, he's, he says, go ahead and keep mowing down Christians like you would mow the grass. He says, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Probably heard that quote before, right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, the church is kind of an elliptical, but the idea is that's what he's referring to. In other words, the more that the Romans persecuted Christians, the more um, the church would grow. And I think that's I think that's that's true. You could see that in many places in the world. Uh, his second quote was, uh, "What has Athens to do with Jerusalem?" And here uh, he meant uh, this was a kind of a protest of. Uh, a reliance, an over-reliance on Greek philosophy um, as opposed to uh, Christian and uh, Jewish sources. Um, Marcion's, that's Tertullian, those quotes are Tertullian. Marcion's manuscript, so similar to um, uh, from um, the Gnostic, the, uh, the Gnostic books like the Gnostic Gospels, those kinds of things that we didn't have records of those until the uh, discovery of those in Egypt, the Nag Hammadi, right? Uh, we Marcion's books were... Um, no, uh, no, but it's similar to that. We didn't have oh, okay. them for a long time until they discovered those, uh, the Gospel of Thomas and all of those Gnostic books in the Nag Hammadi. So for the only thing for a long period of time up until 1945, what we knew about... Uh, the Gnostics were from the critics. W the only thing that we know about Marcion to this day, we don't have any manuscripts of Marcion. We have Tertullian to think that everything that we know about Marcion, um, what he wrote, uh, comes from Tertullian quoting it and responding to it in his book. 
So uh, Marcion's manuscripts don't exist, uh, and um, we could piece together the bulk of what he was writing in uh, Tertullian's against Marcion. Um, and so Tertullian is to be uh, thanked for uh, for squashing um, it. Squashing, yes. It, it's a very exhaustive. Uh, uh, just book, book four alone is where he just goes through the book of Luke to show how all of these are connected to the Old Testament and the Old Testament God. So he, so Tertullian was really working to undermine at the fundamental level what Marcion was about. He didn't believe that the Old Testament God had anything to do with the New Testament God, and he only, want, he only believed the only book authoritative was Luke. So Tertullian says, all right, I'm just going to go to Luke. And I will just show you from Luke's gospel the all of your claims as being false. Just like Jesus with the Sadducees. Yes, very exactly, exactly. So utilizing the ground that they're giving you. So, um, you know, okay, is this the playing field you're going to 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 have me operate from? That's fine. Well, we'll do that. So, um, so I'd love to get into Tertullian tonight, but that is, oh man, we only have ten minutes. Left? Oh, wow. Okay, then let me, let me skip to a couple of things. So here's the... What do I have on the handout? Okay, so let me give you the two main things where um, Marcion's uh, legacy can be seen in the church today. Where Marcion's legacy can be seen in the church today. Any dividing of the Bible books into authoritative or not, or of divine origin or not, Okay. Any dividing of the Bible's books into authoritative and not authoritative, or of divine or not, um, is carrying on a Marcion legacy. Okay, so here you have Marcion, a human person who's attempting to discern for other people this is this is scripture and this isn't. Okay? Now it's going to get us to questions about the canon of Scripture, which we now definitely won't get into tonight. Um, but we do have a canon of Scripture. There were other writings out there, like the Gospel of Thomas we saw, and the, uh, there were also the intertestamental books we saw, like um, First and Second Maccabees and, and those kinds of books. And those were in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Why aren't they in the New Testament? Um, how many of you have heard people say, well, we didn't know what was in the, the New Testament until the 4th century? Anybody heard that argument before? And it was a church council in the latter half of the 4th century that determined which books were, of, were, were scripture and which weren't. Yeah. Um, the reason for a large... Uh, Marcion is to be credited largely for why that, that even had to happen. Because as it was practiced in the church, they knew which books were authoritative and what they would read from. They would read from the Hebrew scriptures and they would circulate copies of portions of the Gospels and, and Paul's letters and Peter's letters. And that would go on for decades. And they would consider all of those authoritative letters because they came from apostles. And so they didn't, it wasn't like uh, what 
many people today who make that argument say that in the fourth century the church decided that these are scripture. That's not what happened. Uh, they were having to respond to movements like Marcion who were saying, no, no, only these are scripture. And they would, they'd have to say, no, we've always counted all of these as scripture. Um, there's a handful in there, like Hebrews, Revelation, there were some, some debates. Uh, but largely, they recognized the Gospels? No, we, we have held these as authoritative for all of these centuries. So it wasn't like the church is inventing that at that time. Does that make sense? Okay. So if you hear somebody today saying, well, you know, we didn't, we didn't really have an official New Testament until the 4th century. Uh, that's, that's not true. Which council was that? Uh, Laodicea, I think. The Council of Laodicea, L-A-O-D-I-C-E-A, which was one of the churches in Revelation. So the Church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. three in 363? I think. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I have it here. I'll, I'll check on that. Here's the second uh, doctrine that... Um, that is a legacy of Marcion's, it's part of Marcion's uh, legacy. Any dividing of the nature of God up into opposing or conflicting parts. Any dividing the nature of God up into opposing and conflicting parts. So let me give a couple of modern equivalents here. And if if you if something springs to mind, just raise your hand and bring it up. Uh, but let me just kind of toss out a couple of ways in which there are modern equivalents or some relevance to this. Well, I can think of who's a who's a famous person who took his razor blade and actually cut up parts of the Bible. Thomas Jefferson. You have the Thomas Jefferson Bible. You could go to Amazon and buy Thomas Jefferson's Bible. That's the Bible. He that's the 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 parts of the Bible that he cut up and he thought was acceptable. How many of you have heard of the movement Red Letter Christians? For a show of your hands, right? Okay. What does that mean? The term Red Letter Christians. Jesus' words. Jesus' words. words, right? Because in some Bibles, Jesus' words are printed in red, and so we're going to take Jesus' words over that, okay? And what, uh, what are they hoping to do Remote teachings they don't like. <laughs> that's right. I think to get to, to Gabe's point is that's another a, an excellent example of pitting Jesus against other New Testament writers, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, there was uh, I think uh, who's the guy with the dreadlocks? Uh, no, not the NAR guy. The more Peter Tosh, Bob Marley. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know Shane. Shane Claiborne, yes. So Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo wrote a book called Red Letter Christians. And in there, uh, they addressed the charge. I was trying to find the exact quote. In there, they addressed the charge. Now, some of you think that we think that Jesus' words are more important. You're right. They basically say, yes, we do think Jesus' words are more important. How, would, how, do, how should we respond to that? Then you don't believe the Bible yeah. You don't believe that all of it is inspired. You don't believe all of it is equally inspired, yeah. Maybe they believe some of it is 
inspired, but the word was made flesh. The yeah. You'll meet the word one day. <laughs> You'd also have a hard time uh, refuting Jesus' own words because he quotes the Old Testament. Mm. So we're trying to unhitch Jesus' words from the Old Testament. Jesus himself uses the Old Testament, so you, you can't. You used the word. I did. I've been looking for a place to throw that up. Yeah, you did. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't. I didn't put that in here, but that's excellent. Does that? Does anybody? That sound familiar to anybody? Kind of pay attention to churchy related news. A Andy Stanley, in a podcast or an interview one time, said that we really need to unhitch. We really feel like the the Christian church really needs to unhitch from the Old Testament. Or was it in a sermon? I think it was a sermon. I think it was in a sermon, yeah. So he said that we really need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Who is Andy Stanley? Uh, he pastors... Um, he pastors a church down there in Texas. Or no, Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah, Atlanta area. Charles, Charles Stanley's son. Yeah, he's Charles Stanley's son. Yeah. Another, another popular build Johnsonism is... Um, we don't worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. Whoa. We worship the Holy Spirit. The, the, word, the Bible is just ink on paper. And people can use it as, you know, however they want. All right, somebody turn to 2 Timothy. we got to get to that. Infallibility. 3.16. Yeah, so we got to get to that. You should not stand very close to those people. Yeah. Spicy <laughs> bolts. Run, run out of the bathhouse like. Yeah. Serenthus is in. The enemy of the truth is within. Um, okay, I have it if you want. Whatever you're spelling, I think you're spelling it wrong. Yeah. It looks like the symbol for high. Okay, so let me. I'll do it. I'll do it. Yes, yes, Rosie, got it. Theopneustos. Okay, so let me read First or Second Timothy three sixteen. You can read back verse fifteen to sixteen is fine too. But oh, I yeah, you got it. All, all Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Yes, right. So the word there for God breathed is um, theop, theop neustos, right? So the word here, theos, is the Greek word for God. It, so Paul mashed these, these two terms together. I don't think that there is any record of this term in ancient Greek, Greek literature. He's basically coining a term, like was really fancy, fancy thing to do nowadays. You know, no spaces, put it together. Theop neustos. And then this is neustos here, pneustos, should pronounce it right, pneustos. Um, this, is, this is the term to, uh, the verb is to blow, okay? Like, to, like a breath, like blowing. Um, but the verb of that is spirit or wind. The term for the Holy Spirit is pneuma. So it's a variant on there. So this is there's multiple multiple layers here. Did God just breathe out 
the scriptures, uh, or is there some embedded in here the idea that the God, the Spirit, is the the author? If you could, if you could put it on a person of the Trinity, that's the uh, that's the author of Scripture. Uh, you would say the Spirit, because uh, we saw this in was it First uh, Peter. First Peter chapter five. Uh, no, second. Uh, I should know this. First Peter one or Second Peter one? Which is it? First Peter. Any help? Looking for um, <laughs> yeah. Give me a second here. Give me search terms. Give me search terms. Um, the men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Maybe Second Peter one twenty twenty one because that's the reference scripture to. Yeah, yeah, that's it, right there. Okay, so it is Second Second Peter one. Okay. Oh, you want me to stop? No, I'm finish right your okay, finish. The okay, <laughs> they have new stuff. Who? So, I, I'm answering Joe's question, or whose question was it? I was just pulling Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson. <laughs> we believe in God the Father, Son, and yeah, not the Holy, not, not the Holy Bible. Yeah. Um, we believe in the Holy Spirit. My my point is the Holy Spirit authored the scriptures. I think that's my quote, point. The yeah. quote was not we don't believe in we we don't worship the Bible. We don't worship, we don't the, worship which, the Bible, which, which also then elevates um, any other relevant uh, revelation. Yes, and lowers scripture. It lowers lowers yes. lower scripture exactly. Well, and we saw this in the Second Peter series where Peter he's. He just was talking about, he, he's arguing against those, uh, his opponents, and he's saying, you know, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the, the power and coming of our Lord. And then he talks about his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? He goes, so let me tell you, Mike, we didn't make this up. Uh, we saw a preview. We got to see behind the curtain of what the resurrected Jesus looks like on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, but he says, but even then, what we have something that's even more sure than that. We have written scripture. Uh, we have something more sure, the prophetic word, which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's my, that's my point in bringing these two passages together. Um, Bill Johnson should not like this passage because Peter's refuting his direct experience. He's not refuting it. He's saying, I have something more sure, more sure than our direct experience on the Mount of Transfiguration is that we have the prophetic word, the inspired scriptures. You do well to pay attention to. So, yeah. It would also close his money-making practices. <laughs> <laughs> there, 
He really doesn't want to. The eight charge, eight charge, quite a bit for that. Yeah. Just here, if we're if we're thinking in terms of what to say to a person who has these ideas, like, well, I, I really like Jesus, but this tall guy, not so much. And I think the thing to press them on is to say, like, it sounds like you've really thought about this a lot. Can you tell me what was what was the principle that you used mm -hmm. to to draw that conclusion? because there just isn't one, right? It's just like, well, I kind of like this and I don't like this. Mm -hmm. So if you press yeah. them on the principle, I think that's maybe the mm -hmm. the thing to go for, the thing to press them on. Yeah. yeah. Good, good job, Gilbert. Yeah. <laughs> Columbo tactic number two. <laughs> <laughs> so to, like, if they responded with, well, how do I know that First Timothy was inspired in Second Timothy, it's claiming it in and of itself is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Like, why should I trust that? Just because someone else trusted it a long time ago, why should I trust that now? Oh, yeah. So that's a kind of a pretty... Um, this would be like an unbeliever? Mm -hmm. that, okay, yeah. Do you want me to answer that? <laughs> no, because I really I have to go Janet put my kids to bed. <laughs> I know, and I really do have to go. I have to go get their points. Yeah. But okay, so let me write that question down. We'll come back. To become, yeah, thank you. Okay. Uh, say that a question again. So this is from an unbeliever, and they're basically saying, well, how do I know? Right, why should I why trust? Should, why should I trust? Because, okay, if I accept the verse, all scripture is God-breathed, sure, the Holy Spirit put all scripture, but define all scripture. Like, how do I know that Genesis is considered scripture? Yeah. I think maybe the Old Testament's a little easier for me to answer that, but, like, New Testament and letters specifically, I've heard, come under attack as to, well, that was just a letter to a church that's not applicable to us today. Why is that scripture? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a great question. Can we, can we do like we did this week and revisit? We'll come back to that very question at the beginning next week, briefly. Next time it will be briefly. <laughs> you guys don't believe me, do you? It's like a boy who cried wolf. Okay. Great question. That's a great question. Because that does get to the issue of the canon of Scripture. Why, what, how did we get to what we consider to be our books of the Bible? Um, now, from an unbeliever, they still might be like, well, how do I know this is of God? You know, so, okay. um, so let me pray, and then, uh, then we'll go. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're grateful tonight um, for your truth, uh, and we're grateful for the way that you have raised up these servants of yours uh, throughout history uh, that have um, confronted uh, error and that uh, we know that that is, um, that is a part of your work, and we're grateful that you, by your spirit, was, uh, were, were able to, um, to use them for that purpose, to bring uh, to light the truth. Um, God, we pray that you give us uh, eyes to see the ways in which um, Marcion-like tendencies happen in the church today, where we're, um, people are questioning um, which parts of the Bible are authoritative and which are not, um, or are attempting to divide um, the Bible up into the good God versus um, 
the wrathful and mean God. And uh, God, we know that all of your word from beginning to end is yours. We know that you have breathed it out. And uh, we know this, that, uh, that it is out of your love that you sent uh, your son into the world. Um, that it's your love for us and that he was obedient um, to you and suffering on the cross for us. And we thank you that you um, have sent the Counselor of the Holy Spirit to be, uh, to be in us and to dwell us and that he guides us and comforts us and leads us into all truth. And God, we pray that he will continue to do that ministry and uh, in the ways in which we think through these challenges and the ways in which we um, can um, confront the false ideas that are around us today. So um, we ask that you would give us the strength, the courage, and the conviction to do so, uh, so that we'd be obedient to you and bring glory to your name. It's in the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.